You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we will be talking with Alex Boutros, a local political organizer who worked with Ilhan Omar during her campaign, and we will talk about that for sure, but also more generally about her work doing political organizing with youth and people of color. And it's great, and I'm so excited to share it with you. But first, hi, Melody. How's it going? You just got back from abroad. Hey, hey, talk to make it. <laughs> that I just said hello. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I was in Sweden. It was really great. I what to say about it? Well, first I will say that to be a killjoy, American culture ruins everything, and I am always disappointed when I go to Europe and there's like a McDonald's and a Burger King and I mm-hmm. put on the radio and it's all American pop artists and blah, blah, blah. So that's always disappointing, never surprising, but still just like, but there is an amazing black metal scene there in Stockholm, Sweden. I think I kind of knew that, but that's rad. Did you like the show? No, I didn't. But Dakota went off and did that. Oh, cool. Uh, So there was like a, there was a metal fest in, in, um, (laughs) it was you know what is amazing about it? It wasn't even in Stockholm. It was by the town that my pa- my family is from, which is Yan Shoping. And there was a, a metal fest like the next town over. And there was also a connected tattoo festival. Mm. So I was going to go down there, but I, have you ever been to a tattoo fest? I haven't. I haven't either. I mean, I think it's it's a space in which, like, if you love somebody from Spain, they come over from Spain and they're at this festival. But it's, like, not really a place where you just, like, pop in and are like, hey, can I get a tattoo from you? But yeah. uh, but anyway, so that was going on. So they have an awesome metal scene there. And then, yeah, when I went out to the pub at, in the evening, I, there was, like, a lot of metal people out with their metal outfits on, which I am saying with respect. Um I just sound really old. <laughs> so it was great. No, it was really great. It's a very wonderful country. I visited multiple cities. I always really admire Europe and like how many people just take the train and, and ride mm-hmm. bikes and mm-hmm. like parents just like push their kids around in these like waterproof strollers. And that's mm-hmm. just like how it is. And it's nice. You know, gas is super expensive there. Like we f- we rented a car to do some countryside driving Mm -hmm. and i filled up the tank and i'm not even exaggerating it was 70 dollars. wow and that wasn't even a full tank in like a tiny car i'm guessing in like a energy efficient car not a hybrid not electric but like one that has amazing gas mileage and i said to myself i was like well no wonder nobody drives here like if we would just increase our cost of gas like it would just change things well also they haven't colonized oil rich nations and like killed half the population. That's another great uh, point for Sweden. Yes, <laughs> right. that is true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Inter- I mean, we've we've talked so much about travel and like how it's obviously like an immense privilege and there's problems with it. But it's also like if you do have the means to do it, like what a fucking eye opener. And like to me, I just think that it's so fucking important for revolutionary struggle to connect globally to how we're all like all of this shit, colonialism, capitalism, global capitalism, et cetera, 
white supremacy is a global thing. So we need to like be connected and understand our relationship to other parts of the country. So like these observations are so important. So thank you for sharing them. Yeah. And I would also add that I usually have a lot of apprehension and nervousness traveling as a white lady, Mm -hmm. but I felt for the first time I was like, well, I'm actually like going back to my homeland. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, so I felt, I felt really okay when I was back in the town that my family's from, but still like I do have this um, shame for sure for being American and like not wanting people to know I'm American. Uh, You know, I felt bad that a lot of people speak English in Europe. And so you know, even in Sweden, like I wasn't expecting to be able to communicate with people and I could totally easily when speaking English. And it's just it feels like this um, like, oh, so all of these countries have learned English and mm-hmm. I can't even fucking say mm-hmm. a few sentences in Swedish and also cannot speak Spanish fluently, you know, right. and and and. And so yep. it's just a really stark reminder of and I don't feel like guilt about it it's just shame about like our country like our how our society is built you know like that we don't teach children to know multiple languages because why because you go overseas or you go anywhere and everybody just speaks english yeah because we're the colonizers um so yeah yeah but it was it was great and my last thing i will say about sweden is in the place where my family is from i was just trying to kind of like figure i was like well I don't know where my great, great, great grandpa worked, but let me just walk around town and see where I'm drawn. So I was like drawn to this old factory. It was an old paper factory that opened up uh, in 1862, which was six years before he left for America. So I was like, ah, he probably worked at this paper factory. And then I went to the pub that night and I just ended up talking to these guys and they all worked for the post office, which is amazing because if you know me, I love mail and the post office and post Bless workers. The post office. Yes. Yes. But then also, one of the guys that I talked to a lot, Albine, he was like, Oh, yeah, you know, my dad worked in this paper factory. I was like, This paper factory? And I showed him the picture of the factory oh that I took. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, he worked oh. there until 1995. And I was like, Okay, my, my, definitely my great, great great grandpa like oh. probably worked there right because oh. like what are the odds that i yeah. sit down oh, and I talk to somebody that. from a post off you know like first I off you're a post that. office worker where i'm like you're amazing let me show you all my post office art and they're all oh. like what <laughs> i was like oh. i love you like oh. so it was uh that was like the best like spiritual kind of totally yeah oh yeah. i love that so much Thanks, i love Rachel. that yeah Oh. So uh, that's my trip in a nutshell. Amazing. Uh, how are you? You were on spring break the same time I was. I was on spring break. I was in Cleveland. Oh, but you went to Cleveland. And I went got to sick. Cleveland. I got sick. <laughs> yeah. I was there for probably three solid days in health and um, wrote solidly for two of those days and felt all the feelings and wrote really well. And well, I mean, who knows? But I, I wrote generatively and um, was learning a lot about I'm I'm in the stage of the memoir where it's like I obviously know what my life was and I've written a lot of that but I'm trying to like contextualize it in the context of the landscape of Cleveland and Cleveland history and my ancestors and ancestors that I'm not blood related to but ancestors of the land um so I'm doing a lot of research and so similarly I had a lot of moments of like 
connecting to the past that felt really prominent. And like you were talking about the post office, I was thinking a lot about printers and like I have a great grandfather who owned a print shop. My mom worked in a print shop. My mom delivered the Plain Dealer, which is the newspaper from Cleveland. Um, She would deliver it at three in the morning before she went to her second job um, for about probably seven years. I think she did that her second job. She had two jobs doing that. Um, And so I was thinking a lot about the print industry. And so anyway, having a lot of nostalgia and feelings and all the things. Um, And then I got super fucking sick. And that was tough, but also not shocking. I feel like, I mean, sickness is a thing that happens to you regardless of anything, but it felt significant that I was dredging up my past Mm -hmm. and trauma Mm -hmm. and then got really sick. I also haven't been sick literally all like since I mean I since like last winter um yeah, used to get sick a lot too I, not a lot but like like what at like, least yeah twice a year kind of thing yeah. yeah it's true and then I think part of that was because I was trigger warning in the throes of a pretty significant eating disorder um and now I nourish myself <laughs> um so I think that helps but um yeah I don't I so anyway, I mean, yeah, but for, for whatever reason, I haven't been sick in a while. And so it was kind of a long time coming. So anyway, I got super sick, but it was it was actually kind of nice because I think my mom felt really great. She she had two days off the day that I – the two days that I was like the most sick. And so she was like able Aww. to take care of me. Yeah, that totally. Was, that was really nice. Um, but I didn't get a lot of writing done those last few days there. So anyway, I'm recovering from the cold. I'm back in Minneapolis, back to school. Um, still congested, but that's fine. Um, but now it's finally spring in Minneapolis, and um, I still have to write. The book is due at the end of the month, and I think I I, I, I will get it done. It's it will be it will be fine. But um, yeah, so. That was a convoluted way of saying that Cleveland was mixed and now I'm back and there's still snow on the ground, but it feels like legitimately spring. Mm-hmm. It is. It's actually it is. spring. So here we are. Before we transition to our interview, can I make uh, an announcement, Please. an FKJ related announcement? Yeah. Uh, you were talking about printers. I would like to make an announcement that I we finally got the poster that we Mm. designed Mm -hmm. but the reason it took so long is because I was searching for a printer who would do a screen print like Mm -hmm. so we took Jones's design and it got screen printed by a local screen printer on awesome like thick paper and various colors of paper and it was like handmade like they made the screen print hand like it was like legit it was no you know local and uh woman-owned shop so we picked it i have them i picked them up and so now i'm going to ship them out and we're going to have extra so if people are interested i can um let people know but they are like uh beautiful like they're so well done and i haven't even seen them that's great no, so I apologize for the very long delay, but it's super worth it Yay. because I've been trying to find like the perfect printer because I didn't want to just like digitally print them. Like that's just because yeah. Jones's design was so well done that it would just look kind of like shitty yeah. <laughs> printed digitally. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so if anybody's local, Afternoon Press is the place to go, super affordable. I We did a small run and they made it super affordable. So they're great. Rad. And, yeah, so another 
I have another announcement that's tangential to that. So when I was in Sweden, I found in Stockholm specifically, we found this cafe around the corner from where we were staying called Cafe 44. And if anybody's local, it's just like hard times. It's like an anarchist cafe. It, it was awesome. And so I got a bunch of anarchist propaganda, communist, Palestinian propaganda. I got a bunch of stuff for you, Rachel, Yay. but also for the activist grab big people. Uh, I'm going to send them stuff because I've been meaning like my activist grab bags are good, but like I've been trying to get something when I'm traveling mm-hmm. and this is like exactly what I wanted to find to like oh, send people. Great. So I'll have that. So I'll send those things out. And yeah. So if you've been waiting for your poster, people like our our listeners are like so chill because like I sometimes take a month to send stickers or something and nobody's like, um, where's my stuff? Which I expect, yeah. like, I always think, like, my anxiety is always so high about mailing yeah. things. I'm like, oh, my God, it's been two weeks and I haven't sent out their sticker. They're going to, like, email me. And, like, nobody ever does. Yeah. And so it's, like, really, it just says a lot about who our listeners are. Like, totally. They're not like, um, excuse me, can I get your... They're not entitled. They're, pro- they're not fucking white dudes. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. I have a, I have a mail, I have a mail announcement, too. I think I have a couple of errant international mailings. So if you are international, if you are an international listener, listener, and you haven't gotten something from the fun drive, that is probably my fault because I that is where I stopped my labor before the new year, and I didn't pick back up. So that is it's literally in a bag of shit that I have to mail, including the zines, my my tarot zines with my mm. my pen pal. So international listeners, don't fret. But similarly, we haven't gotten any complaints. So apologies, but they're coming. I think that was, I think, literally, I think it's one witch grab bag that I'm errant on. Okay. Yeah. And one of my, since we're doing this check-in, one of my international, oh, I think it was a drawing I have to resend because the post office person said I didn't need to fill out a customs form. And then, and then it got did. sent back to me oh. asking for a customs yeah. form. So I was like... <laughs> Okay, dude. So yeah. anyways, we're yeah. it's all coming to you. We love it is all mail. coming. Indeed. And similarly, we didn't even debrief about this before we started recording, but I will say just on the fly. So we announced last week that we are ending the show shortly. Soon. Soon though it will be coming to an end. And I just want to thank everybody who sent messages and sent their Oh yeah. Thank you very much, everybody. Yeah. I mean it's just been it's been really heartwarming to to see people to, to just see people's talk about how the show has impacted them. And we'll say way more about this on our last show. I mean, I already plan a very sort of Pisces moon response to all the emotions I have about all the friends that I've made through the show, etc. But just thank you for that initial, you know, after we made the initial announcement for all the responses that we've gotten. And also on that note, obviously we're ending the show so we totally understand if you want to cancel your patreon like today if you want to keep it going until like the absolute last minute that we are on air that's also rad and we appreciate it but obviously we are we are at in the home stretch so if you want to re 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 distribute your your dollars to another another creator that's awesome and we and we support you um supporting other people who are continuing to make content so that's that's what i'll say about that yes cool so shall we get into this rad episode that i'm really excited about and i feel like really lucky that we have a connection with this person who 
um, does some really fucking relevant work for the situation that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, Do you want to tell us about Alex? So Alex is the operations and events coordinator at Voices for Racial Justice, the board chair of the Women for Political Change Education and Advocacy Fund, and the president of the Minnesota Young DFL, which in uh, in our state, the DFL stands for the Democratic Party, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to joining the team at Voices, she served as the operations director on Representative Elon Omar's congressional primary campaign, where she is now a congressperson, and various roles on other Minnesota-based campaigns. She's deeply passionate about creating spaces for young people to become empowered leaders, focusing her efforts on women and trans non-binary folks. Should I take us there? I would love you to take us there, but I first want to say that the reason we know Alex is because I did yoga teacher training with her a million years ago when she was still in high school, and it was a gift to know her when she was such a rad rabble rouser even back then. And, like, I think I just, like, mentioned colonialism and being into feminism, and she was like, can we have coffee? And I was like, Aww. yes, please, let's like have coffee. like the keywords. <laughs> like, yes. you just drop keywords yes. and see how people respond. <laughs> right, exactly. And she was the only one who was like, yes, please, tell me more. So, so I'm just... I love those moments. Very, yeah, very grateful. So, yes, Melody, please take us there. All right, Alex, thank you so much for being with us today, taking the time out of your day to talk with us about political organizing. Yeah, Boom. thank you for having me. And on International Women's Day, no less. Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the first question we had for you is, we're just curious, like your backstory, like how you got into political organizing. Yeah, so I sort of fell into organizing and particularly um, in the last few years back in 2012 when I was a junior in high school, I volunteered very um, sporadically with the Minnesotans United Campaign for Marriage Equality in Minnesota. Um, And it was kind of the first time I couldn't vote yet. I was very stressed about the 2012 election. There were the two vote no amendments on the ballot in Minnesota, both to ban voter ID and to keep out a constitutional amendment from the Minnesota Constitution that would ban marriage equality. Um, And those were two issues that felt very important to me at the time, and they still feel important to me now, but were very relevant and at a time where I couldn't vote. And looking back, the fact that I couldn't vote in 2012 is, compared to 2016, makes me feel kind of of laugh looking back. But, and so, and then I um, went to college my freshman year in New York City at the new school, um, and ended up transferring to Boston University for my sophomore year of college, where I was a, became a psychology major and was really planning on, you know, like going, just going to graduate a year early and then go straight to law school and become a lawyer. And that was sort of the end of that. And I came home for the summer um, to Minneapolis and I was started an internship with Voices for Racial Justice, where I'm actually working now, um, doing a lot of work in addition to just kind of like typical intern, like clerical duties. I was working um, really closely with the Bridge, our prison justice program, um, where we actually work with incarcerated men primarily. So we're growing into a number of women in our program as well who are um, serving at various prisons around the state of Minnesota um, to teach both teach community organizing, but also create a pipeline um, for them and a connection between sort of our communities and them within their within the prison that they're located um, and really creating an opportunity to also help bridge the gap between prison and the community during that time of transition when someone's coming back to the community and sort of helping to create a space where there's an organizing and there's a community beyond maybe just their family and sort of what they left behind before they went to prison and sort of kind of 
creating a community space for them through the lens of organizing and racial justice. Um, and that was so special for me. I got to know our founder, Kevin Reese, who is currently incarcerated um, at Faribault Prison and has will be coming out later this year, which is super exciting. And he um, founded the program with our executive director, Vina Kay, back in 2014, when he reached out to her after um, he had heard a program that she did on the radio um, and the rest the sort of history. They Kevin is one of the most phenomenal people I've ever gotten to know and is so has really shown me and I think opened my eyes to how many people who are incarcerated are there because of issues that beyond their control, like poverty and systemic racism and things that rather than the way that we sort of portray people who are incarcerated and is so smart and so compassionate and thoughtful and has this whole sort of side to himself that he's not really able to express or use because he's been locked up since he was 17 and he's um, in his early 30s now and is not had the opportunity. He has this GED, not GHD, GED, um, and hasn't really had the opportunity to express himself and really immerse himself in um, the community in the way that he should have. Um, and Kevin, like many people, ended up in prison because of poverty and the circumstances that come along with that. And it is so heartbreaking to see that he spent so much of his very formative adult life in this place. And he has a young son, Kevin Jr., little Kevin, um, who's 15. And it is really been a really special experience for me to get to know him and get to know some of the other guys in the program and some of whom have actually since come back to the community and getting to work with them both in person as well as over the phone has been really special and a really eye-opening experience for me um, and around that same time I a friend of mine's mom actually directed the documentary time for Ilhan that covered Ilhan's campaign and she had asked me to transcribe some of the interviews um, about Il- with Ilhan and some of the other people so I started doing that and then her daughter who's my one of my lifelong friends invited me um, to come volunteer one night and I did and it was I was not I had never really volunteered I'd never volunteered for a candidate before I had done stuff for vote no and things like that but I had never been there on behalf of a candidate so I got there I did my training and then we went out on the doors it was like 95 degrees it was very hot and very muggy like beginning of June and I just like fell in love I got to know some really great people on the campaign and immediately made some very special connections with some of the other organizers and staff and then later that month sort of end of June, ended up meeting Ilhan shortly after, kind of around the weekend of Pride in Minneapolis, and just had a special connection with her almost immediately. And I don't, um, and I, after that, started getting to kind of go along with some of the other senior staff to staff her at events, take her um, to a meet and greet or go to a party and kind of just come along with her and other members of our staff to get an idea of what that looks like. And it was, I immediately was like totally bitten by the bug of like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to drop everything in my life. And like, this is what's happening. And I, toward the end of July, about three or four weeks before the primary in August, talked with one of our senior staff members who became a close friend of mine at the time and had t- briefly talked with Ilhan about the possibility of staying in Minneapolis after the primary and going to the U, transferring potentially to the U and staying there longer term. So I thought about it for like an hour. And was like, that's, I was all in for that. I was so excited that there was sort of an in for me to do that because I wasn't super happy in Boston, but I was going to graduate in a year and go to law school and I would like get started on like my like quote real life if I just sort of blew through it and took a massive turn that I would have never expected. Um, and even now it seems sort of surreal looking back that I just sort of like one day decided to do something totally different and it changed the course of my last few years. And as you know, Ilhan won her primary that August and it was just one of the most incredible experiences of my life to see how what how exciting it was and how meaningful it was for her to win this race after fighting tooth and nail for her success and for this victory and 
a campaign powered by young people and people of color who led this race on her, who led her campaign, I should say, on her behalf and seeing her family and her dad in particular, who who is such an important person in her life, get to celebrate that victory with them was so special and so important. And obviously it was very hard on the night of the election in 2016 to sort of see, there's this really striking picture of Ilhan, like in her full, beautiful, like fancy outfit that night, like waving to the crowd and behind her, there's a TV of like the election being called for Trump. And she hasn't, at this point, she doesn't know. So she's still super excited and like, look, radiant and is so happy and it's a beautiful night and behind her there's like this like off like the apocalypse is happening behind her and it was such a striking moment to like be so excited for Ilhan and so excited to have had this opportunity to be a part of her campaign and to also feel like what was happening nationally was so different than what was and even what was happening across Minnesota when we lost a lot of house seats we we barely kept Minnesota blue and kind of thinking about how those things can happen at the same time was really started a lot of conversations for me and I remember asking some folks at the party who knew Ilhan I was saying like who were there from out of town to visit her and I said like what do you think about this like how are you feeling about the race and one of the women laughed and said you know I like survived a war as a kid and I came to the U.S. um, as a teenager around the time of 9-11 and I survived that and George Bush so I think we're going to be fine. And I remember just being so struck by that and just laughing of like, wow, that is like, it put it in perspective for me of like, I am, it is going to be hard and it's going to change and permanently like hurt and damage a lot of people's lives. And at the same time, like there, this is an opportunity for resilience. And there are people who are, who are here and have survived so much as it is not that you should have to quote, like survive things to, for that to be, to be worthy in some way. But it is, I think, I feel so lucky that there are people like Ilhan and people, leaders like her who are, in this fight and who are bringing a totally different face, both a face with a, a leadership that we've never seen before, regardless of the era, I think is really, it's exciting to sort of see, like, to compare the two, sort of what's happening nationally at the time and what was happening in Minnesota with Ilhan, and to see that she's really become a fighter on the national stage, both before her election to Congress and now, especially as a member of Congress. It's amazing. You have fit a lot in, in <laughs> a few years. That's, yes, that's for sure. really incredible. And yeah. I really, yeah, it's 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 totally amazing. You that and thank you for your labor and helping yeah. do all the things that you've done. That's that's. I um, feel so lucky all. to have gotten to come along. Yeah, it's amazing. So you 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 touched on this, but I would love if you could sort of expand more on why it's so deeply important to uh, think about having more faces of people like Ilhan. And also young people, so women of color generally, broadly speaking, um, thinking about women of color in politics um, and political work more broadly. And also you, you spoke so much about young people, and I would love you to just talk more about how, how that representation can actually make sort of systemic dents. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest things, and I was talking to this, talking about this with someone earlier today, is that I think we're in a time culturally, and this is really exciting, of shifting away from thinking of sort of learned experience or subject matter expertise as being like the marker of someone who's qualified over lived experience and someone who's lived, in Ilhan's case, who's a refugee, who's experienced being an immigrant, who's a Black woman, who's a mother, all these different sort of qualities that make up who she is and inform how she makes policy and inform how she lives about, goes about her life. And I think that's true a lot of all of the really incredible candidates and electeds that we're seeing right now. Like, um, and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who's a young woman, she's a woman of color, she's grew up um, in a low-income area and is really taking all of that experience with her and bringing it to Congress. And I think um, I saw a tweet that, that she posted either today or yesterday that said, you know, people say to her, or talk about her, that like they're going to like send her back to being a bartender as if like being in a position of service in that way is somehow beneath being someone in Congress. And she said, you know, I think of bartending and being in Congress is the same way. Like my job is to serve, not to rule. And I think that both being able to, in a 
280 character tweet like put all of that together and it'd be succinct and easy to understand and also like such a good like snap back to all the stuff Republicans and people just more generally say about her, I think speaks to why it's so important to have people who are particularly kind of to tie in the young people thing of like, she is someone who's like considered like digitally native, who grew up with social media, who knows how to use it in a way that someone who is perhaps older, who didn't have, who didn't grow up with a cell phone in their hand might not have that same nuance and fluidity. And I think that um, she is someone, and I think this is true of many of the young people that we're seeing who are elected across the country in a variety of roles, um, who really are wielding their ability to communicate in a different way. And I think um, there are so many people, I think Ilhan's an example of that too, of the fact that there is this opportunity now to communicate directly um, with your electeds, not only like through a phone call or calling their office, but to actually have those direct communications online. And um, I know there are several, many candidates actually in Minnesota of all backgrounds who do their, who run their own social media. And I think, um, well, they certainly make some missteps. I think it's a really great opportunity that we have the kind of technology that we do today to have those more direct conversations. And I think um, it does leave room for people to say misstep or say things um, too quickly or to react too quickly before they've had a chance to kind of think through their response. And also the shortened amount of characters that are often available on a platform like Twitter can add to some of the missteps. But I think overall, I think it's a good thing that we have these types of opportunities. And it is like we're sort of in the, and the internet is still so new and it doesn't feel new necessarily to me. And I, I'm 23 and I don't remember a time where I didn't, my mom had a cell phone my entire life and I have like have always been able to go online to some extent. And so I think it's hard for me to sort of see that the internet didn't always exist and have a different, there's a different fluency, I think, for people who are sort of under 40, give or take a few years, who really have that knowledge and expertise. And I think it creates a totally different way to communicate and a way of campaigning as well. And I think like the live video that AOC was doing where she's like making stuff in her Instant Pot and then like answering questions about Congress or her legislation and things like that. Um, and just seeing sort of like that, that carry over to like, I think Elizabeth Warren did a live video where she's like cracking a beer not that long, like a few weeks later and um, sort of other similar candidates like Beto O'Rourke video, like taking a video at the dentist. Like not that I'm advocating for that type of footage because I think we can all just imagine <laughs> that on our behalf uh, for ourselves. But it is, I think that these like types of women in particular um, who are such lightning rods in the best possible way are really opening what's possible and demanding more from candidates, especially what we're seeing at the presidential level, like seeing these candidates who are signing on to the Green New Deal and Medicare for All and hosting Instagram Lives um, from their living room is so exciting. And I think really a sign of what these women are doing and how they're pushing the conversation forward, not only on policy, but also on what it means to be an elected official, what it means to be a candidate. Um, uh, yeah, I love that. And yeah. as, as somebody who I'm, I've, I sort of was politicized in a sort of, you know, being a little bit mistrustful of electoral politics and thinking totally. more about social movements. And so I'm always like, you know, I'm always like a little bit hesitant to put a lot of faith in elected officials, but I have to say, like, I have been like completely struck by both Ilhan and AOC in their in what they're willing to say and yeah. i think that part of that is like this i think it is connected to social media in some of the ways that you're describing because totally. you're part of a culture where like i don't know like all of the people i felt like i don't know twitter to me like my twitter is like just like socialism like all the time totally <laughs> the time. Is, and yes. so you know just like i i know that a lot of people think like when we talk about extremes on either side, that it's bad. And like, obviously I think being extreme on the right is fucking, you know, egregious and, you know, little, literally evil. But I yeah. actually think that it's really amazing that when we have 
a burgeoning and growing extreme left movement, whether it's online and and or on the ground, that our elected officials who young people are now starting to vote in are also going to be a little bit further left and a little bit more willing to say some things that seemed just completely unthinkable, you know, recent in recent time, right? Totally. in mainstream politics. And so I love thinking about all those connections and the ways that you sort of um, described that. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I even think about like some of the kind of candidates maybe not getting quite as much of attention, at least online, um, partly because they are they represent slightly more conservative districts like Lauren Underwood, who represents a, like, I believe a district that's somewhat rural or has is not a super urban area in Illinois, who's a young, she's the youngest black woman in Congress. She's 32 ish, give or take. And um, she's a nurse and has been someone who recently got a lot of press earlier this week. Cause she's the, um, one of the vice chairs of the, of a committee that was, um, which whose name I have forgotten that is, was interviewing the Homeland Security secretary. And it was just answer, asking the questions with such diligence and thought and also not backing down from asking hard questions or questions that may seem pointed or partisan, as it were, that I think did a really good job of sort of highlighting the fact that like, you don't have to be the AOC or be in a district that's 80% blue to have that impact and to raise your voice and to sort of, I think she's a great example of those legislators who are maybe more represent, who have to be a little bit more, um, I don't want to say conservative, but maybe aren't quite as out there um, as some of the other electeds might be because of where they represent. And it's their first term and they're sort of getting their footing. Um, And I think and at the same time, I think she's doing a great job of not sort of playing to the middle, um, but really Mm -hmm. focusing on sort of the practice, like, how do we how do I push? How do I like align my values with those that uh, with the members of my district maybe don't share the same things with that I do. And also sort of where is there common ground that we both agree we can fight for? And I think when it comes to sort of like some of the things around immigration, like with like jailing kids and the tear gassing at the border, which I know happened under, I know the tear gassing happened under Obama. I don't, I don't know definitively about like children being put in cages, but I would not be surprised if it happened during his terms as well. There's some common ground around that to some extent around the Mueller investigation and um, Trump's ties to Russia. And so I think that there's, I think that she's demonstrating a really great opportunity to really put herself out there and to ask these tough questions and to sort of push to the left in a different way than someone like Ilhan or AOC or Rashida might, or Ayanna Presley for that matter as well. And so I think it's exciting to see the sort of like what it looks like to have different models of leadership and Johanna Hayes, who was recently on the cover of Rolling Stone with Ilhan and AOC and Nancy Pelosi. And is another person I think of maybe hasn't been as like out there in the same way that they are getting the same level of attention, but I think is really bringing a new perspective and a new image of what it looks like to represent Connecticut. I believe if I'm not mistaken, she's the first black woman to represent any district in the state. And I think it's really exciting to see that in a state that maybe has not gone for someone like has not elected someone like her before that she's representing them and bringing this new voice in regardless of maybe if she's as out if she's getting the same attention and I think that Ilhan could sneeze and she'd get there'd be national stories about it she has there's and she's known that and I think it's something that she's always been very aware of and I think is sort of like she's going to get that attention anyway so why not lean into it and really take that opportunity to grab the mic and say what needs to be said which I think is really great and I can at least thinking for myself like if I was in that position I don't know what I how I would how I would handle it probably not as gracefully as she has for sure but I think it's really so special especially as a constituent of hers and someone who's worked with her and sort of seen her go through this journey from her six-year-old said once I've known her since she was just just my mom so that's sort of how I like seeing her from going from a mom to this like national candidate and someone who has a very large platform across the country and um, even across the world in some areas is so exciting and knowing that she is really 
not shying away from that attention and leaning into it to really create important legislation and just all even just starting really important conversations around healthcare and the influence of money in politics, both within the context of APAC and also beyond. Ilhan was one of the candidates this year that didn't take any doesn't take any corporate PAC or corporate lobbyist money. And this her campaign is largely funded by small donors and has really been committed to that. And that's another, I think, conversation that she's been a part of really pushing. Awesome. So when you were talking about the AOC and Ilan Omar and Elizabeth Warren's use of social media, I was thinking that not all of that activity online is is I guess, consumed equitably. Sure. And what I'm getting at is that even though there's this amazing moment of the millennial generation using social media, I'm seeing a lot of backlash and I not specifically with uh, Elon Omar's comments that that got attention, but just a lot of what AOC has done. And I'm wondering if if you're sensing that there is some inequity in terms of like how that social media is consumed and understood by the greater public. And I have a sense that I feel like AOC and Elon Omar, like you said, anything they do makes national news. But at the same time, I feel like they're being criticized at a level that I haven't seen. Um, I was just thinking like of our president, our unfortunate president, like the stuff Uh that he does. And it's like, you know, at this point, it's just like it's just like typical, right? Have you all talked about that in like the the political world about how these women of color who have gotten into office are now also facing unfair criticism on social media? Yeah, I think it comes up. There haven't been I haven't been privy to a lot of like sort of direct conversations, but I see on Facebook and things like that people that I know who are politically engaged, maybe haven't that I don't know from campaign work, but that I know from community who are engaged in this are following what's going on and have acknowledging the way that it's like the way that Ilhan and AOC and any anyone who's not a straight white man essentially has Mm -hmm. been attacked. Is mm-hmm. more likely to be attacked, um, and that, that that is rooted in racism and misogyny and misogynoir and um, homophobia and anti-blackness and so on and so forth, um, and all the things um, sort of that someone can, that leaves someone vulnerable for critique in our current political climate and just our sort of dominant social culture as a whole. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of these women sort of know and sign up for. And I think um, sort of scaling back a little bit more locally in Minneapolis, um, Angela Conley, who's the Hennepin County Commissioner for District Four. Um, is the first Black person and Black woman to ever represent um, an, a seat on Hennepin County um, and is incredibly, has been an incredibly powerful leader. Her campaign was so just completely changed what it means, I think, to run a community-based campaign here in Minnesota and ran against a 20-year incumbent who is an older white man who sort of has had, had this seat essentially as his career seat and had less experience at the time when he was elected right around the time I was born than Angela had when she ran this past fall. And was re- repeatedly told, you know, you know, you need more experience before I vote for you. And like, Peter knows what he's doing. So we should keep electing him and having to have, excuse me, the conversation over and over again of that he only knows what he's doing because he's had the seat for 20 years and their experience was not considered the same. And they were critiqued both online and in person very differently and thought of as being that he was often given the benefit of the doubt as far as experience and all these things. And um, when Angela was a, at the time was a 20 year employee of the County, I guess is still an, an employee now that she's on the board, but um, is, has used County services as a single mom. And that was something that she talked a lot about on the campaign. She has four kids. Um, her youngest is five and was talking about as a single mom when she was, had her daughter first um, about 15, 20 years ago, 
um, that she needed to access services that the county provided. And she has lived experience in knowing how difficult it was to get all of the services that she needed because the way that it's currently functions, they're all so disjointed that it was hard for her to get everything she needed in one place. And it often required multiple trips to different offices and talking to many different people just to get basic services that she needed to support herself and her family. And that's something that that lived experience that she'll bring with her and the amount of people that I experienced either door knocking or phone calling or just kind of being out in the campaign world on her supporting her the amount of people that really were hesitant to support her because she didn't have enough experience, they didn't feel like she was the right candidate, or they had a relationship with Peter, or whatever it was. But there was always, when people didn't support her, it was never because they didn't agree with her. It was because there was some other excuse as to why they couldn't support her. It was never that I don't, it was very rarely, I should say, that they don't agree with her politics. Um, and that was really clear, became very clear very quickly that that's not, it's not about Peter, it's about maintaining the status quo, maintaining a power balance that does not include and uplift Black women. And that and that that anecdote also speaks to what you were saying earlier about with uh, why it's important and why I think we've seen a lot of people of color being hired and on political organizing staffs is that it's that lived experience that's so important. Totally. Right. But again, (laughs) white man trumps all lived experience, right, because their experience is like held up as gold. Whereas somebody who's actually gone through the system, like that experience isn't valid, right? which is extremely unfortunate. And I do think we're in a place, I think, and I can't speak to other places around the country, but one of the things that was so exciting about, I mean, Election Day 2018 was exciting just compared to 2016, sort of across the board. But one of the most exciting things was seeing all these people and so many women getting elected in Minnesota, both Angela Conley, Irene Fernando, who joins Angela as as the other first person of color, first woman of color to represent Hennepin County in in a position of board leadership and seeing them and Mitra Jalali Nelson getting elected in a special election for the St. Paul City Council and Peggy Flanagan becoming the highest elected Native American in the U.S. in American history. Seeing her success is so exciting and seeing all these women who are breaking barriers for other little girls. And one of the things that Ilhan said in her primary acceptance speech this past summer was I something to the effect of, I want all the little girls around the world who are watching this to know that you're that you are powerful and that your voice is valuable and necessary. And she was sort of saying it to the like to the little girl that who was who she was when she was in a refugee camp many years ago and to sort of all the little girls around the world who are looking up to someone like her and to see her as a possibility. And I think in addition to the lived experience and the like incredible wealth of knowledge that women of color and women in general and People of, actually, should say not to go all to All Lives Matter, but people of any sort of marginalized background bring really important experience and knowledge to the table when they are elected and when they're in public office. And I also think that the representation and the ability to see someone who looks like you and see someone whose experience mimics yours is so important in seeing in what it means to see yourself as a political leader and as someone who could run for office. And I remember once Ilhan and I were at we were out shopping one time, just we were at Target one night and these two young girls who probably couldn't have been more than 12 or 13 saw her and were just so excited to meet her and to see her in person. And um, we're just saying how much it meant to them to see her and how powerful it is and how much it means to them to see a woman that looks like that looks like them leading and breaking barriers in this work. And that is so special, I think, and is cannot be overlooked. And also what that representation means just sort of on the very on the most basic level, what it means to have women who look like Ilhan and who look like AOC and Rashida and Ayanna Presley and all these women. Sharice Davids and Deb Howland as well, sort of who are breaking these barriers of what it looks like to be in leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm wondering if you are open to talking more about your personal experience doing this work as I, I is it correct that you would identify as Arab American? Is that yes, for sure. And you're also, you know, and, and a young woman. And so I'm yeah. thinking about, you know, your 
you're doing this work and obviously the candidates and and I, you know, people who are eventually get into office obviously are susceptible to all these sort of criticisms that we were talking about and hearing all these like, you know, vitriolic things about them, you know, that sort of kind of comes with the territory of being a public figure. But I'm curious yeah. about you, when you're doing this work as a young woman of color and having to engage in these conversations that may actually be comments on your own positionality and your identity, which is what, what, what was that like navigating that? Like, how did you use that? How did you use your identity? Not in a manipulative way, but like, how is it a tool for you? How is it an asset to be like, I'm going to have this conversation with you as somebody who is impacted by exactly the things I'm talking to you about. And then what, and were there also times that that was like, holy shit, I don't want to hear one more white dude telling me that he doesn't want to, you know, have some, you know, non-white woman, whatever. Um, do you, so could, could you just speak to that if you're, if you're open? Yeah, for sure. I think I sort of have felt for a long time that I'm in this sort of like in-between zone where like I identify as Arab. I have a very strong attachment to my Lebanese culture and to my heritage. And it's a very important part of my family life. and something I think a lot about and is very important to me. And I also know that, you know, my, my I'm sort of, I'm second and a half generation is what I say. Cause I, my, my grandparents and my mom were born here, but their parents came to the U S and sort of, were sort of all mashed together in terms of how, because, and my grandma's parents came to the U S as teenagers. Um, they are like 14. They didn't speak any English. They had no money. And this was like early 19, 1920s ish, perhaps a little bit before that. I don't know the exact date. Um, I actually were turned away at Ellis Island because my grandma, my great grandma had glaucoma in one eye and um, to get into the U.S., you couldn't. You had to go through a physical exam, and that's true to this day that you can't have any. There's like certain physical deficits. I think this has since changed, but at the time that you couldn't have to be let in. So they were turned away as teenagers halfway across the world, having like were not able to see their family again, yeah. and ended up sort of finding a way to get to take to take to to take a boat. They didn't have planes then to take a boat down to Mexico um, and cross the border up into California where they settled in Los Angeles. And my grandma had my grandma who lived there until she got married and moved to North Dakota, which is where my, my mom and her siblings grew up. And it is so I think so critically about and so thankfully about how that that was that knowing that my half of part of my family didn't come to like came to the U.S. as undocumented immigrants and I'm sure faced challenges but didn't face many of the challenges that they are, people are experiencing today and something I was talking to some people yesterday who were saying you know they have family who live in Texas and on the border and a couple other states as well and have a different approach to sort of thinking about the sort of like the building quote the wall and sort of thinking about immigration in a different way and because it affects them differently because they live closer to the border which and I was saying to them you know there's this quote from a Warsan Shire poem who's a Somali poet and artist who's like, it's part of this longer poem, but the line that sticks out is, um, no one leaves the land for the sea unless the mouth of a shark is safer than like, there's, I'm botching it, but unless the mouth of the shark is safer than home. Mm-hmm. And I think about that, like explaining that to people who sort of are here. And I think if you're not super listening to all the news all the time, it is hard to sort of parse through how to feel about a lot of things. I think there are many people who are sort of like over it and don't want to talk about it because it just feels so like there's too much information and it's sad and it's hard all the time. And I understand that sort of impulse to shut down. And I think, and I said to that person, you know, like people who travel hundreds and thousands of miles from where they are with nothing with them to come somewhere else are not doing it because they like, it's so much more complicated than we can ever imagine. No one's leaving their home and walk, like no one's sending their like, young children uh, out by themselves to walk thousands of miles to the U.S. unless they're leaving something that's a lot more dangerous than what's here. And that it's our job to welcome them and to take them into a, like, to, like, give them the abundance that we have in the U.S. and not turn them away. And I think a lot about that and how lucky I am, you know, that my, 
uh, that we haven't faced the same immigration challenges that other families would have co- who have who have come from the U.S. And um, when the Muslim ban happened, and Lebanon is not included in the countries that are currently banned, but knowing that there are families from Syria and Somalia and Yemen and Iran and all these other countries in the Middle East who are not able to come here, and knowing that if that had happened when my at a time where my family was trying to come to the U.S., like I may not be here, and I may have had a, my life may be totally different. And I think about that a lot, and sort of things have turned out the way that they have, and I also feel. Though I have an Arab identity, I am Christian. I am very, very light-skinned. I often joke that I sort of was like raised white. I'm very pale. Uh, I don't have a very, I have a somewhat ethnic sounding last name, but it's not, it doesn't obviously out me as one thing or the other. And I have ex- extreme financial privilege when it, um, and socioeconomic status when it comes and s- compared to many other people in my situation. And I feel that it's my responsibility to sort of temper both of those things and know that like, while I have the lived experience of being being an Arab, being someone from the Middle East, being Lebanese at the same time and being a woman at the same time, I have so many privileges that I, that other people can't even imagine that I, it's my job to know sort of when, how to, how to use that privilege for when it's really important and also how to know when to take a step back when there are people with more who have, who have their story to tell. And it's my responsibility to amplify their story, not to sort of tell mine on top of theirs. And I think about that with someone like Ilhan and it's something that she and I have had conversations about sort of what is like, how to sort of how do I navigate my identity in that way? And it's something that has been a challenge for me for sure. And I have struggled to know what's the best way to sort of represent myself and to hold that space for myself and, and to be in community with other people who share various parts of my identity depend, uh, sort of in different contexts and how to know that I sort of move through the world understanding that identity, but also that I hold a lot of privilege that when most people look at me, they don't immediately make a judgment about uh, me based on the based on my ethnicity or my sort of ethnic background and that there's or my or my faith for that matter and there's a lot of privilege in that and sort of and so when I think about how do I like show up in spaces it's much more about how do I acknowledge like celebrate my identity in the in the times that it's important and also know that it's my responsibility to sort of be someone who's amplifying other people's voices who are more marginalized than mine or who don't have the platform that I do or the access um, to a to resources that I've had and vary whether that's going to college or going attending private schools as a kid or summer camp or whatever that thing may be. I've had, I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of experiences that people have not had and knowing that it's my job to create more spaces where that's possible and to use the privilege that I do have to sort of break down more barriers for other people to sort of, and hold the, hold the proverbial door open as it is. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. So Alex, you have brought up and we know that you have worked with Ilan Omar in a very personal way for a, for a while. And obviously she's in the news right now because of some statements that she has made on social media and just as herself as a politician. And I think, was it today now that the, that, that bill was passed? What can you, for, I think maybe it'd be better if you explain it. Cause I, I've, I've, to be honest, I've been so angry about the news that I just shut it off when I hear it, which is probably not the best thing to do. But we were curious, um, because you've worked with her and because you identify as Arab and you've been an organizer and all that, like, what is your take on what's going on right now with the de- specifically the Democratic Party's response to what Elon Omar has been saying about the Israeli political party and their power yeah. that they have in, in America? I think that's a great question. And something that sort of the way that I think about it and just for full disclosure for um, I have I worked with Ilhan in her 2016 campaign and her 2018 primary, but I have I'm not currently employed by Ilhan. Um, I have not worked officially for her since August of 2018. Just clarify that for any can clear up any confusion. But um, one thing that I've sort of thought about with it, and this is something that I've I've learned a lot about myself, is also meeting with getting to be in sort of 
circles with other with Jewish leaders and community members who are have been very helpful and important in sort of explaining how to how to have these conversations with more with as much compassion and sort of reverence to the very complicated nature of the issue. And I think one of the, the sort of the place where I land with it is like there that it is it's it's possible and it should we should be able to criticize other governments, but there we have to be able to do it in a way that doesn't rely on or use tropes that have been used to marginalize other people. So not using traditional anti-Semitic terms to, 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 to when you're discussing the Israeli government. It is so deeply ingrained in the culture, um, and that's on purpose. That's how anti- that's how that's how anti-Semitism has been so successful for so long is that it is so insipid in our culture and is so hard to it can be very difficult to spot when we get when we lose sight of the fact that the rights entire goal is to scapegoat black Americans and black leaders from speaking out against Israel as a, as a conduit, as, as a way to label them anti-Semitic is that's, that's the, that's their goal. Like Angela Davis has been another person who's been criticized for being anti-Semitic for being very critical of the Israeli government is another, like one of the people that really jumps out to me as someone who's also been sort of pushed aside in that way. And I think that what it comes down to for me, and I said this just a bit ago is like, it is there. We have to be able to criticize governments. We criticize our own government all the time in the U.S. And to be able to criticize the Israeli government or any other government entity for that matter in a way that doesn't pre- doesn't rely on or invoke anti tropes that are designed to marginalize a community, whether it's Jewish people or otherwise. And I think it is less about. I think for people on the right, I think about Meghan McCain yesterday and her comments about the some of Rep. Omar's comments and just about the sort of conversation that's happening that's happening right now and how she was saying that someone like Ilhan's comments like make her nervous and make her feel scared when Megan McCain is one of the founders of the Federalist, I believe is the website that open has many, many articles about anti-Semitism about telling telling Jewish people who are scared about the way that anti-Semitism is sort of rising again are like making it up or like are afraid of nothing. So I think she's certainly not someone to talk about that and is it it show it really shows in that in that type of language that she's saying that it is coming from a place of anti-blackness and racism and wanting to use Ilhan as a way to scapegoat to attack Ilhan with it by any means necessary so this is like another thing to grab onto and if I understand correctly I haven't I haven't been reading a ton about the resolution I've just been sort of getting what I can from Twitter which is a good and a bad thing is that the resolution was drawn up to sort of say that the members of Congress like denounce anti-Semitism where it shows up and are committed to ending anti-Semitism. And I think originally it was brought up as a way to sort of call out Ilhan. And I read something, though I don't know that this is definitively true, that that it was the resolution was originally going to name Ilhan. It didn't the final resolution did not. Ilhan actually herself voted for it, which I think is one of those things that is so would surprise a lot of people, I think, or a lot of critics of Ilhan. Like many Republicans voted against it and she voted for it. Do you think it's possible for politicians, especially politicians who are people of color to criticize Israel and not be called anti be called anti-Semitic at the same time like is it yes an easy no. isn't it kind of like an easy uh, blanket to put over the criticism like oh shush shush totally. shush you're just being anti-Semitic when they're actually yeah. they're making a very valid point yes I think that if Ilhan was white or otherwise not who she like yeah was white namely um i think that her comments would have been received differently or and at the very least sh- this story would have gone away more quickly than it has i think that yes i yes and i think that i don't i think that it i think that it should be possible for people of color 
to be able to criticize the Israeli government and their policies and the way that they treat Palestinians. And right now, Republicans are seeing the power of the Ilhans and the AOCs and the Rashidas and the Ayanas and the Deb Howland and Sharice Davids and these women who are showing what it's like, showing representation and leadership that's never happened before and are just grasping at straws to take them down in whatever way they can, knowing the influence that they're having right now and the influence they'll likely have in 2020 and beyond that and are just doing everything they can. And I think there are probably other Democrats who also don't agree with what they're saying or what they're doing because it's, it is moving the party, quote, too far to the left, when in fact, I think people are also, I think every generation to some extent gets more progressive. And I think we're seeing like, Gen Z and the generation that comes after them just like showing progressivism and left-leaningness in a way that we've never seen before. I think it is, I think it scares candidates and electeds who have not had to take a firm stand before on a variety of issues. And that's exciting and also means it's, there's a, there's sort of just like an inherent fight in that for sure. And I think sort of to to tie in your question to Representative Betty McCollum, who is the Congresswoman for Minnesota's District 4, which is St. Paul and sort of the surrounding suburbs all the way to Stillwater and the Minnesota-Wisconsin border on the east side, has been a long, 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 long time champion of Palestinians. Um, and in fact, several years ago, banned APAC from coming to her office after they made some comments about her that she didn't agree with and has authored a bill that is yet to be passed um, for obvious reasons that um, denies U.S. aid, would deny U.S. aid to Israel as long as Israel continues to jail Palestinian children, which you'd think would not, on paper, I mean, excuse, uh, separating sort of the, the the way that like the APAC, like APAC and sort of money in politics is, is makes legislation stop and go. Um, I think that it is something where that's the type of bill that like if it was another country, we would absolutely, that bill would have passed a long time ago. So that, and Betty McCollum is an older white woman who, I don't want to discredit the work that she's done and the incredible ally and champion she's been for Palestinians in Congress, but I think she has not faced a lot of scrutiny to my knowledge and understanding. And she's been elected since, I believe, sometime in the 90s. So clearly it is, there's a double standard between her and Rebel Moore. Yeah, it's just so frustrating that a comment about Israel as a state that isn't about Jewish people specifically can be can garner so much controversy and relate to this bill that that is that you that we we did think just passed today which is a good bit you know it's good and obviously like it's very important to think about promoting anti-semitism like n- nobody's trying to say that on this podcast is trying to say otherwise and yet you can have white nationalists in the street screaming Jews will not replace us and that is something that doesn't that somehow is just like not not I just feel like it got it didn't I'm rambling because I'm frustrated because it just it just feels enraging that a critic a critique of of a state versus actual anti-semitism violent white nationalist anti-semitism yeah it wasn't no I told Rachel you're making a solid point and I'm just not stating it very well because I just it just yeah it just feels the hypocrisy angry. is very clear yeah yes absolutely and I think about like um, the representative from Iowa whose name I'm blanking on who's made some very anti-Semitic comments who ex- Steve King Stephen King mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. who is made openly anti-Semitic comments who is so egregiously terrible that the Democratic leadership who I don't always agree with on many things including their handling of this particular issue um, have banned him from having any committee assignments so he's essentially useless in Congress and. Yeah. There's been no censuring of him, no reprimand for him by the Democratic or Republican leadership. Yeah, uh, right. And I think that that, and I yeah. think that's sort of 
like illustrates your point very well of that there is like rampant and raging white nationalism that is rooted in anti-Semitism happening and that's not being none of which is being censured or even talked about in the, in the in this larger I think it is in many circles but in sort of the national over overarching narrative it's not really coming up yeah absolutely and also let this be an opportunity to remember you know how Israel and Zionism does really violent things to people also which yes. is like we're saying you know that we need to sort of like this can be an opportunity for both of those things to be remembered and reflected on yes so, and yeah. how do we have those conversations how do we hold those two things at the same time exactly sure. exactly exactly we are getting it about at time you brought so many interesting and important anecdotes and thoughts and reflections and analyses and we're just so grateful and i'm wondering if um we didn't sort of prep this on the comment sheet but just since since I know you're you're um, you know committed to getting more young people and people of color doing you know political work, do you have any sort of I don't know words of advice or inspiration or something you sort of heard that helped you on your path or anything you want to say to any of our listeners who might be um, wanting to be more involved in this way? For sure, I think the biggest thing is like just show up to something. I don't, it can be, you could like volunteer for a candidate. You could volunteer for an issue that you really care about. And that could also be something like volunteering at the Humane Society or volunteering at a shelter or at a school or something that isn't necessarily doesn't feel inherently like you're volunteering in like a political space, but is a good entry and sort of finding ways where you can plug in issues that are really important to you and ways that you can get involved. And um, if there are candidates in your area, support them, donate to them, make calls on their behalf. No one likes door knocking. Some people do, but many people do not. <laughs> and it is so unbelievably important. Those face-to-face -face and phone conversations are the, are the, make a huge difference in the success in elections. And so does, and unfortunately in the system we have right now, money makes a huge impact. So if you can give $5, if you can give $100, whatever it is, that goes so far to these candidates and these campaigns. And start on the local level. You don't have to volunteer for a candidate for Congress or support your senators, but get involved, whether it's for the county board, for the city council, for the mayor's race, whatever it is, find a place, state house, state senate, whatever it is, find a place to plug in and get involved. Um, people need you. And if you're local and based in Minnesota and you want to get involved and you're a young person, um, Look for Women for Political Change online. We're on Twitter and social and Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's a budding nonprofit that supports and uplifts the work of young women, trans and non-binary folks with a special lens on developing the leadership of women of color and black women in particular. Um, and we would love to get you more involved. We're, we have um, chapters on campuses, college campuses, and are developing some sort of young professional, sort of young, young people in the non-academic spaces opportunities as well, along with the Minnesota Young DFL. We are the youth arm of the DFL party here in Minnesota, and we have many opportunities to help you get plugged into candidates and campaigns that are happening this year and sort of gearing up for 2020 as well, which is going to be a big year, particularly in Minnesota, with lots of candidates on the ballot, including one of our senators running for president, which will, um, I think, be an interesting, it'll sort of change what the landscape looks like here for sure. Uh, and I'm really excited and I'm so happy I got to be on the podcast tonight and talk through my experience working for Ilhan and for supporting many other women of color and um, women candidates and what it means to lead in public. I'm really on my Wayne's world today. You, you did a really good job. Like, I don't know, I'm even going to have to like mess with the volume levels of that. Also, tangentially, 
Um, I tweet with my students like they tell me like what they're going to do their papers on and stuff. So I mm-hmm. communicate with them via Twitter and I use GIFs and I my if their topic was good, I would send them Wayne's World or Wayne giving <laughs> a thumbs up like the Zang, like the eh. uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Do they all. get it? I don't care. I mean, Wayne Wayne is giving a thumbs up, so like they get that I'm fine with it. Yeah. And then there there was one student who like also copied me and then started sending people Wayne's World gifts and said that he loved Wayne's World. So I feel like because okay, here's the other thing I wanted to do in addition to comment like met, meta discussion about your Wayne's World sound effects. I wanted to say and we back and we back because we obviously did that all the That's time. Also a good I one. feel yeah. like. Our two main pop culture references of our podcast history is Wayne's World and Chance the Rapper. That's very true. Do you think that's true? And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm at not all. ashamed of either of them. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> like both dude centric, technically, and uh, but like Wayne's World was directed by a woman. Yes, and yes, Chance loves God, but also he actually doesn't like cops, and that's good. Yeah, and he loves his daughter. Yes. And he's a great person. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, reading, watching, and listening. What you got? For our last episode, okay, for our last episode, like, can we try to harmonize? Is that too hard? <laughs> yes, no. I don't even know how to do that, but. Are you, were you in choir? Mm-hmm. Were you an alto or a soprano? What do you think I was? Alto. Yeah. So was I. Damn it. So we're going to have to figure that out. We can. It doesn't have to be like. It can still be within our vocal range. Rachel and Melody. Uh, we'll figure it out. We'll do it. Yep. Let's yeah. not do that live on okay. the air. Although very entertaining for me. <laughs> All right. What do you got? I'm reading. I'm rereading. So this might have been mentioned before, but this book called Quiet. Oh, Did yeah. I just, no, did you, I just I talk about this? I don't I don't know that you did, but I feel like I've heard of it. Okay. It's this book called Okay. I'm reading this book called Quiet by Susan Kane, and it's actually about introverts. And mm-hmm. it's not like a help, like a you're an introvert. Here's five things to get th- through your work day. Uh <laughs> it's more like uh it reminds me of like a Malcolm Gladwell kind of book where she's like, mm-hmm. here are some case studies. Like, let me tell you about this, like philosopher in 1978 and he was an introvert and like this is why introverts are really great for the world Mm -hmm. so it gets a little stuffy in that way because i hate reading about sorry i just don't like reading about the history of white men sometimes because i i know too much you know Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day like if you read through her case studies you're like oh okay i get what she's saying because i am an introvert even though i'm very outgoing i'm very much like Mm -hmm. even my own time so it's just a nice book um to just kind of like feel better about who I am because our world is so dominated by extroverts and like the concept of like open offices where like nobody has their own personal space and like that's like I could never work in a space I can't work in a space like that right at any rate that's what I'm reading and then I'm watching have you ever heard of Tom McDonald Mm, I don't he's a rapper he's a white rapper. okay okay he has this new video out called sad rappers mm-hmm. and i really like it it'd be really interesting to do a, a representational analysis of it mm. but the video is super cool he's kind of marilyn manson knee mm. uh but he makes it's this uh powerful 
he makes the argument in the song and the video that there are rappers right now that are capitalizing on mental health, mental illness, and like pretending to be mentally unstable to like sell records. Hmm. Interesting. It's very, it's very provocative. And, okay. Um, so I would, I would watch it. It's a very striking video. Okay. I'll watch uh, it. And he I'll makes, try. there's like this one line where he says like, he basically ties pharmace- pharmaceutical companies to the mainstream record industry. Hmm. Which I always love those conspiracy theories that like, yeah. you know, everybody's working together. So whatever. It's provocative. I would check it out. I'm listening to this song called Smile by Lil Duval. Have you heard of this song? I haven't. I'm living my best life. Ain't going back and forth with you, brothers. I'm living my best life. And then um, Snoop Dogg has a line in it. Ooh. He has a verse. I'm already it's, like jamming to it. My shoulders are shaking. It's super catchy. The artwork is actually him with daniel striped tiger from mr rogers like he dressed up like mr rogers which i usually am not down with like parodies but like the song like it's perfect like i'm like this is cool like you're doing it that's fine so i love the song you can listen to the clean version so there's no n-word or b-word because they say smile bishes but the bish is very subtle okay i like it um like Snoop Dogg says is my favorite line. If you're breathing, you achieving. That's nice. That's, you know, posy. Yeah, very posy. It's a very posy song. So Lil Duval is like an R&B singer and then he has these rappers come on and that's great. Check it out. Cool. What about you? What are you RWLing? <sighs> Reading. I didn't talk about this on air, although I did slip it into the last newsletter. I read in like three and a half days this book called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by T. Kara Madden. Um, that book sounds really fascinating. It's She's an incredible fucking writer. Like really a beautiful writer. I was mesmerized. It is not TBH. Like I obviously like I'm a relatively smart human being, but like I don't I'm it's not easy for me to like burn through books, but I read this book so fucking fast because it was so compelling and it's because of her brilliant writing. I I will say I haven't heard anybody like call this out. I think try so I'm just going to kill joy the title like T. Kara Madden is not a white person. She's a mixed race person um of Chinese and American uh white descent. Um, and tribe, it has been sort of called out for its sort of Native American appropriative uses. So that aside, she's not a white woman saying this. She is, she's a woman of color saying this, but she's not nat- a Native American. But anyway, that, that aside, um, she, it, it, on, it was just, it was just such a fucking good book and I hope everybody reads it. And if you're financially able to support her, to support her, and if not, get it from the library, um it's beautifully written and she did grow up wealthy like her family is wealthy and so in that you know you know me listeners know me like I fucking hate rich people but like her family was there's a lot of um like severe severe drug addiction in her family and it was um 
I just related to it so for being about a, a person who grew up with wealth, I related to it so deeply because of the the experiences of trauma that she ended up having. And also she just writes so fucking honestly about like coming coming into womanhood in the 90s and there were moments that I was literally like blown away because I had literally just so I'm writing my memoir about coming of age of a as a woman in the 90s and like literally there were things we like literally wrote the same thing about like she her relationship to an Alanis Morissette song I literally had just written about before I like read her book and I was like shut up this which is, one what's um the one where she says, well, would she go down on you in a theater? Like, we oh, yeah. both we both have a significant amount of paragraphs about learning and understanding about that terminology <sighs> through Alanis Morissette. Oh, my gosh. I, <laughs> like, need to, I need to read it just for that. Because there, there's not a lot wild. of books that talk about that. Ex- exactly. Oh. Yeah. So, like, it's it, it was so bizarre. To, like, I read it on the plane to Cleveland and then finished it, like, the mornings before I was writing. And it was just, like bananas and I like secretly kind of hope that I can become BFFs with her someday also she's queer now so anyway it was fantastic um watching um I just watched the pilot of Shrill and I'm excited to finish it Shrill is based on Lindy West's memoir Lindy West is a fat white um writer who I I genuinely I really genuinely like her writing she's like smart and she's not like super particularly super radical but she's obviously very like left-leaning and feminist and um has you know good good and important things to say about bodies and uh, womanhood and things like that and Aidy Bryant stars in the sort of dramatic representation of it and the pilot was really good and um people in the fat community uh seem to be liking it for the most part there are some critiques about tokenism of people of color on the show but um those people are also that I've read are also hopeful that those characters can sort of be expanded on and so that it's um ultimately just a great show so I'm excited to keep watching that reading watching listening listening to as we discussed on Twitter Melody spring always makes me want to listen to basically pop punk um specifically I listen to kind of like crusty DIY pop punk um via vis-a-vis the Ladderman this band called Life Rocks that's not even on Spotify because they were just like kind of an offshoot of that sort of whole scene um that's cool yeah not on Spotify not on Spotify you can find them on YouTube though Life Rocks exclamation point band. If you search that, you'll find their music. Um, Defiance Ohio, uh, given your recommendation from last week, Set Your Goals is now on my list, um, etc. So yeah, just like springtime, even though like neither of us love the sun or warm weather, I think after a really long winter, it still feels good (laughs) to just like not be in pain walking out the door and so like I do kind of want to listen to like really posy music about people feeling just like super fucking stoked about life and so I'm listening to a lot of pop punk right now cool yes great well this was great we will be back with who knows one more episode two more episodes 
three more episodes, probably somewhere along the lines of one of those. We'll tell you more soon. Um, what else? Anything else? I think we're good. All right, FKJ. Power. Power.